morning, church. <laughs> We're going to go into scripture reading this morning. Um, the passage is going to be Ezekiel 43. Um, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you if you want to use those, and you can find the passage on page 1326. All right, this is going to be Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 11. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy this city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kebar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing the east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them Put away from me their prostitution and their funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design, and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them, so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. Amen. Thanks, Becca. <clears throat> hey, everybody. So these are the last three weeks in the book of Ezekiel on these last eight chapters, which are all um, about a vision of a temple which points to the return of God's glory and his presence among his people. So, I'm sorry, okay, before I start, this is the third week I was supposed to give this announcement. We're going to do it this time. If you would like to see the slides from the sermon, you can. They're available at highpointchurch.org forward slash sermon slides. But that was a reasonable guess. All right. So, from chapters 40 to 48, God gives Ezekiel this vision about the future. It is 50 years in the future. Um, before they'll even return from exile, this temple has never been yet built. Anything close to it. So, if this is a literal promise from God, it is yet in the future. From now, 2,000 years later. It is alluded to numerous times. These chapters are alluded to numerous times in the end of the book of Revelation. 
And um, so if, you, if you're tracking the flow of these eight chapters and the flow of the last chapters of Ezekiel, we're to new temple, new city, okay? And one of the things to think about, if you read through chapters 40 to 42, and you read about the description of the temple, there's a lot of details given about the size of the thing. And the size of this temple is larger than anything that's ever been built as a temple to God on planet Earth. Okay, so this is the size of the tabernacle in the desert. This is the size of Solomon's temple, which was like one of the great works of the, of the ancient world. Um, this is the size of, size of Herod's temple. So like in the New Testament, when the disciples were like, Lord, look at how big and amazing this temple is. I mean, that was a real thing, right? This was Solomon's temple. Herod's temple was way bigger, right? And this is the temple that was torn down in 70 AD. This is the vision of the temple in Ezekiel, okay? It's way bigger. In fact, it's larger than the Temple Mount itself. So the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, as it currently exists geologically, I guess would be the right term here, you can't fit this temple on there. So either that means it's a symbolic temple, or something has to literally happen geologically before it can be built. Okay, we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Nick, I don't really care about Bible prophecy all that much. I didn't think about this week one time. Like my whole week went by. Breakfast, lunches, dinners, hanging out with friends, watching YouTube videos, not one time. Did I think about biblical prophecy? And my response to you is, had I not been writing this sermon, that may have been my experience as well. Okay? But in all of the things God says in his word, everywhere, all the time, he's always still really just getting at the same truths that we always constantly don't believe. In fact, the whole purpose of the prophets is to repeat God's words again and again and again to people who have a lot of trouble believing them, to encourage them to actually believe them, so that we can experience God's presence and his life and his work, rather than experiencing everything that comes when we don't. Okay, now, one way to think about this is the whole story of Ezekiel is a story of the departure and the return of the glory of God. The whole story of the book. It starts with people out in the desert, far away from the glory of God, and the glory of God shows up there, 600 miles from the temple, in the desert where it's not supposed to be. So that's strange. And then in chapters 8 to 10, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. He's done with them. The Bible refers to this as God's divorce of his people. He's done with them. Permanently right? But then you get to the—and then, and then we hear in chapter 43 that when the temple is destroyed in chapter 33, and all of Israel completely and utterly destroyed by Babylon, it says that the glory of the Lord was there against the city, helping the Babylonians destroy it. And now in chapter 43, at this final prophecy, what we find out is like, the glory of God is going to return. The whole point of the whole story, the goal has always been for God to return with all that is good about him and all that is to be enjoyed by him, what the Bible calls his glory. Does that make sense? That's the whole story. Now here's the thing. That's the whole story of everything. That's the story of creation. God creates, creates all of creation. He's present with his first created human beings. He's present with his creation. There is the fall and ultimately the end. Of, the whole book is his return in glory to his creation, recreated, right? It's the story of Israel. God comes to be with Abraham. He places himself among his people in the tabernacle, all this, and then the temple, and they sin against him, and then he leaves, and, but then he comes back and he builds this temple for Israel. 
So whatever happens with the Gentiles in the church and most of us, there's still a story with God's original revealing people, the Israelites. And he is there. He is with them. His glory is with them. It departs from them and ultimately it will return. And that's frankly true of all of us, right? We all like sheep have gone astray, it says in Isaiah chapter 53. All of us have turned our own path. And God laid on him, that is his coming servant, the Christ, the iniquities of his all wife, so that we could return to be with God and be in the presence of his glory. That's, that's literally the story from the personal level for each of us in ever-widening circles until you get to literally all of the cosmos. It is the departure and the return of God's glory, right? And so one of the things that we need to recognize is this, is that in under the fall, based on what's happened to us, we think the opposite of that every day, all the time. Um, we are a people, um, a group of human beings who, who act like and feel like we have been constantly abandoned. That people, or wherever we are, is this close to casting us aside, and we're terrified that we're going to be left alone again. Right? Like, one of the things that I've noticed is that more and more as I, like, pastor people, and I try to pastor them in increasingly deeper ways to really help them fully heal in Christ, one of the things that I have noticed is, is that these, like, these core wounds that, like, lead us in our sins because of our fears are really deep, and one of them that's in, like, so many of us is abandonment. Like, we're going to be cast aside. We're not worth it. Nobody really cares about us. Like, it, like people act like they care about us. They don't really care about us. Even the relationships that I think are really stable aren't going to be stable. Something's going to happen, right? Um, and, at, 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 like, on one level, you'd be like, well, of course, Nick. Like, pe- you know, people, you know, families break up, and people get abandoned by parents and by lovers and by friends, and, like, these, like, dramatic and, like, profoundly harmful things happen in people's life. But, you know, it's not just that. Like, more and more, I feel like this kind of wound is, is there in everyone. And it's really important because if one of the ways you feel about the world is that you're looking for a reason to leave because people are everybody's looking for a reason to leave you, right? We think we're doing our theology philosophically. We're trying to think through things the way God would think through them. That's what we think we're doing. Most of us, even when we think we're thinking our theology, are really feeling our theology. And because God reveals himself as a person— we are thinking through what God must be like, like we think through relating to other persons. So the things that we think about persons in our deep places, we backload into our thinking about God and assume that that has to be true about God because that's what it's like when you relate to a person. And what we know about people is they're looking for a reason to leave. But you see what God is showing, like literally on every page of the Bible, is that he's looking for a reason to return. Like, everything that he does is contriving a way to return to a relationship that had to be severed because we chose to leave it so that he could ultimately restore it. One of the, um, this isn't a picture of God. That's, um, Martin Buber, who was a uh, Jewish philosopher in the last century. He wrote a book called I and Thou, and his argument was basically for us to understand ourselves as beings, we had to understand our relationship between ourselves and other people as persons. That I'm a person, and you're a person, not a thing, right? David Brooks, who's a Christian columnist for the New York Times, referred to it as the transition of our society from an I-thou society to an I-it society, right? That, like, you are a commodity to me, and I am a commodity to you, right? That, um, 
if you think about like, would you rather live in a city or a small town? Right? This is Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft, for those of you who like sociology, right? Like, there was this old German saying, city air is free air. Why? Because nobody knows. The impersonality of the city is the thing that makes you free because you're disconnected. The, thing, the problem with a small town is everybody knows your business, right? And so you're like, I don't want to live in a small town. Everybody knows, okay. But that's actually the only way you can live in a society and people actually know you. You're like, yeah, but they knew me when I was like 14 and I was an idiot, right? Like all these seniors who are up there, they're like looking forward to getting away. They're like, I'm going to go someplace. I'm going to get a new start, right? Yeah, you are. That's great. And nobody's going to know you and you can do whatever you want. Because city air is free air. But it's also anonymous air. It's also lonely air. Right? I hate cities. I mean, like, in the emotional sense. I don't intellectually hate them. They have their uses. They create manufacturing and the interplay. There's all kinds of wonderful things about cities. And in the end of Revelation, God comes in a city. Okay? So cities are great. But I can't stand cities. (laughs) I'm hoping, like, I'm going to be, like, one— Like, apparently there's trees and gardens and, like, farming in the city of God. So, like, I don't know what that means. Maybe it's like a rural city. I don't know. (laughs) There's a river, you know. Anyway, so um, the point is, is that we exist evermore in our culture in a commodified culture relationally. So in the small town, we did things just because—like, I grew up in this really small town. Like, my closest neighbor was 400 yards away from us. We lived in a town that had less than 2,000 people that lived in it. And so we went to, like, St. Mary's Catholic Church and had the chicken barbecue. Literally everybody went, right? And we all—I got dirt on my church pants. And, like, you know, I, you know, some kid shoved me behind the sacristy building. And, like, we, like, everybody knew everybody, and everybody was there. It's like the beginning of, like, Zootopia. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so— Sorry, is that a random metaphor? Okay, so the point is that, like, there is this nature by which you're relating in that kind of a context, and you can't help but think the other people are people, and you're a person, and you're relating on the basis of persons, and it's not going to end at any moment, right? But, like, if I go into Arby's and their sandwich isn't meaty enough, I can just go to Hardee's, right? Which I don't because I hate their commercials, right? But, like, but, like, I just, I just go to another place. Like, if the, if the, like, if the, if the bubble tea isn't nice enough here, I'd just go to this other place, right? Who cares? That's, that's commerce. That's—everything's a commodity. But here's the problem is you get things like Facebook and sorting and social medias and blah, 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 blah. And you don't even have to be where you are. Even like literally, when we're literally with each other, we don't have to be with each other, right? We can be wherever we want to be, but we're selecting that on the basis of what commodity is that person for me. Now, the minute that happens in society, everybody knows it. You know it! You know that, like, you think you have a friend, but, like, the minute somebody else is a cooler friend, like, you're gonna get dumped. That's how it happens in marriages now. Right? Let's get, get me a starter wife. You know what I mean? Like, like, people just think, like, every—there's no relationship so sacred. Like, when I've told people who have got elective divorces that they're abandoning their children, they clutch their pearls and gasp that anybody would say something so horrifying. But the thing is, that's what's happening. Like, everybody feels abandoned, but when I say the word, you are abandoning someone you are supposed to be devoted to, or you were abandoned by someone who never should have done that. They were morally obligated never to abandon you. And then you're like, how can you say that, Pastor? That's not very politic. Well, I don't— I don't freaking care. 
This is truth. We are constantly abandoning one another because we're commodifying one another. We have all these I-it relationships, and God hates that. It ruins our psychological capacity to realize that God is not looking for a reason to leave. He's looking for a reason to stay. And he's not just looking for a reason to stay. He's constantly contriving a reason to stay. Even when we are so wicked in profaning and defiling, and I mean, the language he uses is really profound, and how wicked the people were he's trying to have a relationship with. And he's like, even, he even uses divorce itself as a mechanism of restoration. Who does that? Not very many people. But even when he divorces his people and he sends them away, and he destroys his own city, it's like a person divorcing their spouse and burning their own house down to show their spouse, I will never live like this, so that that spouse could come to their senses so that they could remarry and rebuild a house that he then builds with his own hands that's bigger and beautiful than anything they had ever yet imagined, that he would dwell in with them forever. That's the message of these eight chapters. That's the message of the whole Bible. That is the purpose of the coming of his Christ, the ascension into heaven, the coming of his spirit, his promises of the future is all wrapped around this idea that we are constantly as sinners thinking we're about to be abandoned. We're like hyper-competent and overworking ourselves to death and thinking we're too much and not enough at the same time. Do you, do you realize what that sentence means? I can't tell you how many people have told me that. I feel like I'm too much and not enough at the same time. You know what that means? That's an economic statement. The cost is too high, and the benefits are too low. I'm not a good buy. Because I'm not a good buy, people don't want to buy me. So I just get dumped. Even my own parents and my friends. We're good Christian people, right? Who are friends with exactly who we want to be. Going to exactly the kind of church we want to go to. Going to the, do you get what I'm going with this? Now, I have to get to the sermon because it's half over. Okay, so everything in the Bible is a story of the departure and the return of God's glory. Everything in the Bible, on every level, from our, the personal level to the cosmos, right? I already did this part. Aren't you glad? Okay. So, so th- here we get to this climax where the glory of the Lord is re-entering the temple. Okay, and I want to tell you three things about that really quickly. The first is, is that God's mind is focused on the forever, even though ours is constantly focused on the present. God's mind is constantly focused on the forever when ours is on the present. Okay, just, just think about the language in this passage, right? It says in verses 6 to 9, while the, while the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. Now listen to this. This is where I will live amongst the Israelites forever. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. See, I'm going to come. I'm going to contrive a way to come back. I'm going to bring my glory with me. They're going to put away their spiritual prostitution and idolatry, and I'm going to live with them forever. Right? You see, that's the goal. That's always been the goal. And that's what God's mind is always fixed upon. We, we, we really struggle with that. But he makes this clear in chapter 37 as well, right? So as he's talking about the future— He talks about what it's going to be like. He he isn't giving the picture yet that he gives in 40 to 48. But he says this. He says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, in the land where their fathers lived. I want you to pay attention because the word forever is going to come up five times. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And my 
and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant, another word for forever, right? I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. See the point? Like, God is always, even in his greatest leaving, the most painful leaving he ever did to a human people, he did it for the purpose of returning. So that he would dwell with them forever. God's not looking for a reason to leave. He's looking for a reason to stay. He's not just looking for a reason. He's trying to contrive a way in which he can stay. Right? You can see this in Second Peter as well. By the time Peter wrote Second Peter, it had been almost a generation since Jesus died and rose from the dead. Some people believe that his promises about his return meant that his return would be basically immediate. Rather than him saying there would be a last time, the amount of that time was completely indefinite, people felt like the last time, or the last days, was the colloquialism, meant that like it should happen like maybe in 30 minutes, maybe 20 days, maybe 15 months, maybe 7 years, maybe— Right? But it had gone on at this point maybe 30 years or 40 years, right? Not quite, not quite that long. But long enough that people were asking these questions. And he says this, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, right? So he's, he's saying that in the hearts of folks, so they're, they claim to be making like a philosophical argument. It's, it's coming from a place of scoffing, and it's so that they can not follow Jesus and do what God has told them to do, but so they can follow their own evil desires. And he says this, he says, they will say, where's this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, right? So he's saying, like, listen, these—like, all these cataclysmic events Jesus said were going to happen, like, they haven't happened. Like, since the beginning of creation, basically everybody's lived and died, lived and died, lived and died, right? We get spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter. Like, that's what life is like. It's not these big cataclysmic, like, eschatological events, right? And the apostle says, but they deliberately—that word's important. Do you see the noetic effects of the fall are such that— there's things we don't want to know. We know and don't know things deliberately. They deliberately forget that long ago, God's word, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water by water. And by these waters also, the word, well, at that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungod of ungodly men. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, there have been cataclysmic events. There was the cataclysmic event of the creation of the world. There was the cataclysmic event of the flood. There have been cataclysmic events. And they're not, they don't come in like normal time periods. You can't expect them to say, oh, they're going to come right this time. He's like, that's not how it works. God predicts what he will do on the basis of his moral choices about how he is working according to his providence. Our job is not to predict them or bet upon them or say like, when is it coming? It's not here fast enough. He's like, no. Listen, what happens is we are called to live no matter what period of time we live in, no matter what's happening in our day, whether we're stuck in exile, whether we're in the bad generation here, whether God, Jesus is literally on the earth, or whether we're in a time period between one thing and another. None of that matters. All that matters is God has promised something to us for us to believe in our generation, to live according to what he has offered. Right? And he says, he says, listen, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, right? So he's like, listen, when the day of the Lord comes, it's gonna, you're, nobody's gonna really expect it. It's gonna come like out of nowhere because it's gonna feel like life is just going on like in the days of our fathers and mothers. But he says, but listen, what you need to understand is that God just doesn't interact with time the way you interact with time. He doesn't think of it that way. You, you think that he's callous because he's not doing things on the time period you would imagine, but he's, he, he can't see the world the way you see it. It is, it is part of the nature of his character that he sees all times, all at once, how everything is moving in every direction, the implication of everything that happens in every life, in every time, and how they're all related to each other in every way. He can't see anything other than that, even though he sees you in the midst of it. And so he acts so patient that it would be like as though one day were like a thousand years. And then at the same time, in a reverse, it's almost like a thousand years can go by and it's like a day. So that the, the time period and scale of our life, God is weaving our life into his forever plan. That's his goal for you. It has nothing to do with the pain you feel right now other than to weave, use that pain to transform your faith, to weave you into his forever plan. You want to be more important? Well, he doesn't care about that. He wants to use your feeling of insignificance to help you embrace the ordinary, to believe in him in your daily life so that he can weave you into his forever plan. Everything he's doing, he's doing on that time scale. And if you don't accept it, you can't accept him. Which means the implication of this is something like this. Waiting forces us either to have faith or to deny it. Because to look at the world as God, we have to either look at the world as God does or to look away from God altogether. You can't, you, there's no way to accept God in the world as it, as it is if you don't accept his, his time scale relationship to his plan for forever. If you can accept that God lives this way, that he sees the world this way, that he functions in a time scale this way, then you can accept God. You, you can say, look, look, Nick, that's not, I mean, that's a hard way to interpret things. Yeah, but if God is an eternal being pursuing the ends he explicitly says he's pursuing, it also makes perfect sense. That's what faith requires, right? The second thing is maybe not worse, but close. That is, it's going to be stranger than we were expecting. Whatever happens, it's going to be strange, okay? It's kind of the point of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is like one of the strange books. I told you the first week we preached on Ezekiel that if you were a priest, in, in, an Israelite priest, you weren't allowed to even read the book of Ezekiel until you were 30 years old, okay? Now with the adulting level we do right now, it would be 50, okay? Does that make sense? Because it's just assumed, like, just developmentally, you're uh, too unstable until the age of 30 to even read this book. Right? Pete, there's some commentators are like, yeah, he was taking peyote or something. There's just no way, right? Like, I mean, it's a strange book. And, like, the, it starts off with the strangest vision in the Bible. Multi-headed cherubim with wheels, intersecting wheels, and, like, it's strange, right? And then you get to this temple, and the temple's kind of strange. Here's the thing. We are so modernistic in our way of looking at things that we think everything should be engineered to be the simplest possible thing it could possibly be. Everything needs to be a mouse trap. Seven parts, you need them all, they all work, it kills the mouse, right? But here's the problem. A mouse trap doesn't have 750,000 uses. You like that? That was good, right? Um, <laughs> right, like if, if you're building something for only one purpose, then you can have like a really lean model to do it. If you're doing 10, million things, and you're creating a plan to accomplish 10 million, you, it looks like a, 
It looks like the plan to retake Europe in World War II, except 10,000 times more complicated than that. So what's that plan going to look like? Is it going to look like some simple, linear thing that you can sort out in your head? You'll be like, well, God should do this. No, it's going to be complex, but it's also going to be weird. It's going to be weird. Who knows what God uses for what? And who knows what's behind it? And who knows why it's going to produce the results it's going to produce? The things we think would produce certain things don't. I mean, I've been up here preaching awesome for like 12 years, and there's only like 800 of you. <laughs> what's the problem? Right? You've been doing like godly things in your life. You're like, I mean, I feel like people all around me should be coming to Jesus. I don't know. Right? And like, but something will happen. Some weird thing. And some of you are like, maybe God's real. And you're like, what? Why did that make you think God was real? <laughs> right? But that's the, that's the way it is. And so all through Scripture, when God does stuff, it's always weird. He's the God of weird. I mean, think about it. What's, this, what's the spiritual gift you most don't want to receive in the Bible? Right? Speaking in tongues, probably. Okay, right? Why? It seems like a perfectly helpful gift, right? God, through His Spirit, you're speaking stuff you don't even know, but it's like encouraging you. It's worshiping God properly because the Spirit is Himself coming up with what you're saying. Sounds very helpful, right? It's also pretty weird. You know? It's pretty weird. So what? Have you looked at yourself in the mirror naked? It's not to be weirded out by. Like, everything's weird. Like, we come up with these, like, picture archetypes of what everything's supposed to look like, but nothing looks like that. Like, you're, you're, you're sitting right now in a seating instrument designed to be the most uncomfortable thing ever in the history of the world, and we've been doing it for 2,000 years. Come on. We're not sensible. We're weird. We think God's weird. Maybe he's the only sensible one, but it's going to look weird, okay? You're going to have multi-faced things with all kinds of crazy stuff going on. It's going to be weird. And you got to be okay with that because God's not going to change it. Your life's going to be weird. It's not going to go the way you wanted it to. Like, if you would have told me when I was like 20, I was going to pastor in Madison, Wisconsin, I would have told you, probably not. <laughs> probably not. If you were told, told me when I was 12, I was going to have four children. I would have said, probably not. In fact, I think when I was six or seven, my mom could tell you this when she returns, I told her one time when we were driving around in the car that I was going to have my wife artificially inseminated because I lived on a beef farm. That seemed like the way to do it, right? Because <laughs> the normal way to do it seemed weird. But when I got a little more mature, it didn't seem weird anymore. You know? Are you uncomfortable? Good. It's going to be weird. It's going to be weird like this sermon. Okay? The point, the point is, okay, like, as you work through this passage, right, people have struggled. Like, I can't even tell you if this is a literal temple or not. There's some people who think it's going to be the third temple. There's some people who think it's going to be the fourth temple. There's going to be, like, a third temple built, and then you're going to get, like, the Armageddon stuff, and they're going to destroy that temple, and then this is going to be the fourth temple, and then the Jesus coming, he's going to be, like, the fifth temple. Great! I, I don't know. Some people think it's just a symbol of the perfect picture of life with God to the Israelites at that time as they would have heard it in Babylon. Is that right? I don't know. Like, I think it's a little weird that a river flowing out of the, the temple of God that's only up to your ankles— you get downstream like a good ways, and you can't even swim across it because it's so deep. 
That's like anti-physics, right? Like, how does that even happen, right? That's weird. So that sounds, it seems like a symbol, but maybe it's not a symbol. Maybe there's a special water that gets less dense, and I, I don't even know, right? Maybe there's subterranean tributaries we're not told about. I don't know, but it seems like a symbol, right? The, the, the temple being bigger than the Temple Mount, and this, the new city being larger than Jerusalem could possibly be, right? That seems strange, right? So maybe it's a symbol of the beauty. Maybe it's literally true. I do not know. But here's the thing. You see, in this generation in which we live, it probably isn't going to matter. Right? Now, if something really weird geologically happens in Jerusalem, we might need to send some gifts, you know? But, but like, generally speaking, for our lives right here in Madison, it probably doesn't matter. What matters is, is that literal or not, this stands for the promises of God about the future. Right? And as you read through these chapters, um, and you say, well, like, what happens in this new kingdom that God makes, right? And the answer is, everything that the human heart desires, right? So if you look at it, it's like, God is personally there, his presence and his glory. Everything flows from that, right? Now think about this. This is really important, you guys. That's true about your life and my life, too, in this church and everything, right? There's so many good things we want to contrive like engineers, and there's, there's some things that are not meant to be achieved by engineering, right? This clicker, engineers, integral. My car, engineers are integral. My bike, my house, electricity, the internet, engineers are integral, okay? Broad spread human happiness. There's just different tools for that, okay? So the glory and presence of God so changes people, it can produce a certain kind of flourishing, right? So one, one of them is, you see, productivity and fertility. Fertility. I, I don't know what happened there. That's like fertility with the glory of God, you know? <laughs> and then, um, and then franchisement. Like there's this, there's this clarity that anybody who wants to enter the people of God not only is accepted in the people of God, but is given land as an inheritance. Like everybody is part of the community and has what they need to flourish in the community. Does that make sense? And, and nobody's going like, well, you can be part of our community, but we're going to like basically make it so you're a slave, right? Um, there's true of justice. Like, everybody has access to the courts and justice. Everybody, right? Um, there is—there is all kind of structure. Like, there's sacrifices, and the temple works a certain way. There's all these things that are happening that are well-ordered. Everybody knows what God is doing, how they live with each other, who's entitled to what. So this, there's a, a ordering that creates a certain kind of freedom and harmony among people, right? There are celebrations. Pentecost isn't there, but the other two week-long celebrations are really big, and they're paid for by the prince, Right? I think Devin's going to talk about that next week. There is humility and integrity and leadership. So like, there's two main leaders. There's the, there's the priests of Zadok. So like, the Levites are no, and the sons of Aaron are no longer in charge of the temp, uh, temple sacrifices. Why? Because they had this enormous and long history of corruption. And God said, there's one line of men in, in the priesthood who were faithful to me. They actually did what I said, no matter what was done to them, no matter how terrifying it was, no matter who threatened them, they did what was right. And that is the line of Zadok. They will be the priests. The purpose of that is not to relationally or genetically exclude all the other Levites. It's God is showing his people there will finally be a priesthood that's just, that does what's right all the time. And then there's this figure, the prince, right? There, there's no king, right? Only, Ezekiel, and only Ezekiel is, is this place where the kings are called princes, and then the, the prince figure is a specific kind of person who isn't the king, but is in charge, but is also kind of a spiritual leader. He lives adjacent to the temple. It's a really interesting picture. But he, it says, will never oppress or dispossess his people. 
And God explicitly lays out the tax rate that he's to levy on the people, and it's 2% or less. So upon all the people, the total tax rate on all of the productivity that God gives them is 2% or less, because you just don't need the kind of government to govern a flourishing society where people do what's right. Right? You have forgiveness and reconciliation. The sin and fellowship offerings are still being offered. So when, when relationships are broken between God and other people, there's a way to come back that God gives to people of good faith. And there's also liberty and security. No, nobody's going to be dispossessed of the land. Everybody has their inheritance. They know where they fit. Nobody's going to come and take from them something that they shouldn't. Right? That is the promise. And the very last line of Ezekiel is, is that that city will be called the Lord lives there. Because all of these things are produced by the dwelling of God with people. Right? That's the promise. Right? So the last question is, how do we become part of this promise? Right? I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. But um, one of the things some of you have heard, heard me say a number of times is that I, I think it's probably wrong and unhelpful to say that God's love is unconditional. Like, what God shows in this passage is, is that God will suffer abuse, but he will not finally accept it. You and I have to be redeemed. We have to change. Through faith, God can do a work in us by his word and by his spirit so that we can be fitted for the one who will be glorious forever, so that there can be a final and forever compatibility between the glory of God and our being. That has to happen. And so for intervals of time and seasons of history, God will himself allow himself to be abused and to suffer at our hands as he is patient with us to wait and to work and to wait and to work to bring us to a place where we're willing to repent, to turn from our sins, to believe him, to be humbled and humiliated by our sins, to, for it to create a moral gravity in us so that we are ready to know him, to really believe in him, to really become the kind of people who can love him and be loved by him. And in the end, we must become that or be lost. Right? You see this in the passage where he says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by the prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at the high places. And when they placed their threshold next to my threshold and the doorpost besides my doorpost, with only a wall between them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices, so I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. You see the idea there? So even in this restoration, God has a demand. There's a condition, the condition of faith, of repentance, of recognizing, like, what God is doing so that we can come to him. Like, he, he, all that he's doing is contriving a reason to stay. But something has to happen in us. Something really fundamental, something really different. You'd be like, well, Nick, Jesus did, but Jesus didn't talk like that. Oh, uh, yes, he did. Um, like, read—you got to read the whole Bible, right? Like, um, there's numerous places where Jesus um, behaves as though God's love is unconditional in the sense that God's love never fails, right? God's love—God never turns to someone who wants to turn back to him and says no, right? But there are many, many places in the Scriptures, including from the mouth of Jesus himself, where when people are like, no— 
and they are persistent in their rejection of God, where he says, okay, the, the end of that is your personal destruction. So in Luke 13, there's this parable where Jesus says, Jesus is talking to some people who feel kind of self-righteous because they're Jewish, and of course they're God's people, and God thinks they're fantastic, right? And, but they don't have real faith, and it's not changing their lives. They're not becoming the kind of people who bear spiritual fruit. They're not ready to receive God's glory and to live in that kind of relationship with them. So Jesus says this, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? That's because this tower like fell down and killed like 13 people. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And then he tells this parable, right? Then he told this parable. Ah, I could have left it at the Bible. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit the next year, then fine. And if not, then cut it down. You see, when we believe that God's love is literally unconditional, we believe God's love is without condition. So when I stand up and I say what the Bible actually says, it says, no, there's absolutely condition on God's eternal receiving love, which is repentance and faith. That is, to fitting ourselves to receive that love. People go, wait, you're breaking the rules on me. Right? And then people fear that religion will engulf them and they will no longer be themselves. Right? But in Scripture, God constantly says that this is the case. That all salvation, because of the curse, requires redemption. We have to meet the only condition of salvation, which is faith. And it shows that consistently God is—He waits, like, longer than is ever possibly reasonable. So when He says, I've been coming to get fruit from this tree for three years, it doesn't mean He planted it three years ago. It means He planted it probably eight years ago. He waited the standard five years for it to come into fruiting, right? And then he started coming to it for fruit, and there wasn't any fruit. Then he comes back the next year, and there wasn't any fruit. And he comes back a third year, and there clearly isn't any fruit. So he turns to the servant, and he says, look, cut the thing down, plant a new one, right? And the servant's like, let's do it one more year. I'll do a bunch of special things to this tree. I'll, cut, I'll dig around it and put fertilizer in where its roots can get to it. We'll do like some—and then, and then maybe it'll bear fruit. And he's like, and then after another year, if it doesn't, we'll cut it down. See the point there? What he's saying is, he's saying God's love is long-suffering. It's kind. It's patient. I mean, think about this. Um, the Apostle Paul could have contrived some Greek phrase to put in 1 Corinthians 13 so that we could have said love is patient, love is kind, love is unconditional, but he, it's not in there. Love is patient. It is kind. It is long-suffering. It's not self-seeking. But that does not mean that it will suffer our abuse of it forever. Does that make sense? And God demands that we be healed. One, so that we don't profane his name, so we don't forever spiritually and personally abuse him, but also so that we are no longer defiled and degraded by our own sin, destroying ourselves, which is his image in us. That has to be redeemed, and it can only be redeemed through faith. We have to choose to give up our rebellion, to repent, to listen to what God actually says, to be so humiliated by a moral recognition of what we've done, that it doesn't destroy us in shame, but it gives us a moral gravity that makes us want to pursue the good and to honor God and to make Him happy. Real faith that produces actual fruit 
In the Bible, nothing that we call faith is real faith unless it produces righteousness or what the Bible calls fruit, right? This is the same idea in Hebrews, right? He says, land that drinks the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. That's, of course, a metaphor for salvation, where he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Do you see the connection between fruit and salvation there? What he's saying is, is if salvation really happens, that by faith we really turn to God, we repent, we receive the humiliation of the moral things that we've really done, we receive God's gracious forgiveness and the work of the purification in us of all unrighteousness through the power of his Spirit, and we walk to actually learn how to love him as he's meant to be loved, ever more increasingly being able to enjoy his glory so that ultimately we can enjoy his glory forever, receiving real sonship, feeling like God never feels about us, like we're too much and not enough, knowing that our relationship with him is not an I-it relationship. It's always been an I-thou. We are, we are a person to him. We matter to him. Every single person. And you might say, it's impossible, God. Like the I matter to God. Listen, more people can matter to me. They don't matter to me because of the kind of person I am. Not because of how much concentration I have. The reason why God can love every person is not just because he has limited con unlimited concentration. He's a different kind of person than you and me. Like the good kind. The kind that treats people as people. The kind of loves people as persons. The kind of person who knows that we are a creature to be loved because he created us as creatures to be loved. That's why he demands we love each other. It says that the entire authentication of the Christian faith to all people everywhere is that we would love one another. It's not just some game he's playing so we'll be nice to each other because we're his kids. Literally, love is the authentication that you actually believe other people are people and that you are a person, and that they deserve to be loved, and you deserve to be loved. And that that is what God is creating gloriously forever. And that that is the fruit of real faith. And that God promises the people who live in that, he is going to make a future for. Even though a day is like a thousand years, and even though it's going to be weird, y'all, there is an end in which he will make a city where the Lord himself lives. Where the Christ is, his, is the light of the world, where you and I will live in what it looks like to be free, to be set right with each other, to be flourishing in his name, and to, for his presence to be with us. And in every generation, whether it was the generation of the exiles, whether it was the generation of Cain, to the last generation and through this one, whether we lived in the cataclysmic generation is not the point. We live before the same God, under the same promise, with the same demands, under the same invitation, with him willing to give us the same spirit, under a great measure of a true gospel. Give me just one, listen, one more minute. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus himself. Like, if you haven't come to, to Jesus, Savior, you're still wobbly on him. Like, that's what Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says this. No eye has seen or mind conceived what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And people think that's about heaven sometimes. It's not. He says, because he says right after that, if people had understood, they would not have killed the Lord. Because Jesus was too weird. Je everything Jesus said was on this, like, weird time scale that nobody could accept. Right? 
And Jesus was the one that as loving as he was, as, as, as much as he was working always to contrive a way for people to come back, he was always demanding. He was always saying things like the fig tree parable. Putting before us, listen, you have to repent. You have to turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is here. Right? And that's true right now. Listen, um, as we get ready to sing, and I want, you to, I want you to realize this, that like every moment is a moment of repentance and faith. Every moment is a moment where you can turn to the living God. God is not looking for a reason to abandon you. He's looking for a reason to return. He has supplied one for you, and you can offer it back to him. He's given everything you need for life and godliness. He promises the gift of his spirit, the help of everything that you need, but you must be willing. And as much as he can give you the gift of faith, you have to, with him, make yourself willing and believe. And in so doing, we can receive salvation. We can learn to love one another, and we can live as people who believe in the promise, no matter what the time scale, no matter how weird. Father, please help us to um, receive these promises as the people in that generation must have received them or needed to receive them. Help us to see that you've done the exact same thing in Jesus, who was on a weird time scale, who see, seemed strange to everybody, but who made the same demands of how we're meant to come to you. And we pray, God, that you would help us to believe now. Holy Spirit, please come right now amidst us for all of our individual needs and where we are emotionally and personally and Help us to see where we have been creating our theology psychologically, where we've been letting our fear of abandonment tell us what you're like, and please override and remind us that you have spoken and shown the opposite is true. That an abandoned people, a Christ came to, even though he knew they would kill him, and he promised them that he would return for all who would receive him. I pray that right now, there be people receiving his name, calling out to you in their minds and with their words, that you would save them, that you would come to them, that you would receive them, that they would offer their repentance and love towards you, and that they would know that you receive it. I pray that it would be freeing and saving and helping.